we are creating a platform for those who are curious, one that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is the Working Artist Project. So today on the Working Arts Project, I have Miss Malika Belhaj. I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so if someone asked you what it is that you do like for a living, what do you tell them? Hmm. Um, you know, this is this is an interesting question because people ask me that a lot and I'm trying to um, get away from the answer of kind of I'm busy. I kind of see my life having like two main functions right now. Um, I work in youth education, so I work for um, a nonprofit in Portland, um, an alternative high school, and I do community outreach work. And so my work um, in terms of kind of 40 hours a week is really looking at kind of um, community organizing and thinking about how our agencies can serve our young um, people in a good way and how we can kind of support um, our future generation. And so a lot of my work looks at looks at that in terms of kind of Monday to Friday. Um, but in the evenings and on the weekends, um, I uh, do a lot of performance. And so I write, um, I bind books and I read at different, different kind of performances. And that could be like on the stage type of performance or um, usually I try to set up a space that really is like, it's like a living room, like welcoming somebody into my home. So having a carpet, I do tea um, ceremonies for different events in town and I read um, my work and I do pop-up dinners, um, kind of sharing Moroccan food and sharing our um, different food traditions with people. So all of my work seems really to me to center on like community building and creating with each other, both in my nine to five um, and in the work that I do as an artist. So are, do you classify yourself as a poet or what, what do you call it? I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. It's a great question. I don't think that like I have a classification. People ask me that a lot and I'm like, well, I love to write. Um, but I also like see that my art a lot of times is through like the food that I make and in a way that is like my poetry. So like poetry could be in the sense of like my just like oration when I'm talking to people and I'm sharing a story, um, when I'm sharing a story that I've written or when I'm sharing a story from the heart or from my ancestry. Um, but it could also be in the food that I'm cooking for people and preparing, not even sitting at a table, but just offering them, um, that meal. So I don't really, I mean, I, I don't know, like if putting it within, um, like the confines of a definition nef necessarily like, um, expresses what it is that I do as an artist. Wow. That's okay. It's undefinable people. You know? Undefinable y'all. It's funny because you, you mentioned food and you mentioned like serving people. And I think in every culture, like food is, is art, right? Like, you know, in an Afri African-American tradition, it's like the food food in our culture is very important because that's where the family comes together. As mm -hmm. you come together with friends and you can discuss topics, you know, you can really discuss anything. It's kind of like the barbershop and, and like mm -hmm. family get togethers with food. Why is that important yeah. for you and why is it important for your culture? Yeah, um, I think food is like the most one of the most intrinsic, like, and important things in my life as um, as a Moroccan person. So my dad, 
he grew up in a very kind of food centric culture. So I don't, I don't think like food didn't really have, um, it's like a part of, it's a part of life. It's like you live in the city where you have the souk, you have the market. My dad's father, he made halia, which is a traditional dried meat that they make from camel and they render the camel fat and they, and they preserve the meat, um, in the fat. And, um, his father also baked bread and my father told stories about, you know, running through the town, um, through his city, having, having the bread in his arms and dropping it off at different markets. And so to me, it's like in every part of my history and every part of our people, it's what sustained us through, um, through our history. It's what sustained us through colonization. And so for me, like, it's like, it's actually just like a, an act of healing and an act of, um, you know, remembering and reflecting on, on what we've been through and kind of doing those same things. It's like language. It's like, it's within us. We know that it's there, even if we don't speak a language fluently, if it's in our lineage, it's a part of who we are. And so I see my food traditions like that, where if I'm going to have people over at our house, we're going to make couscous, we're going to sit down, we're all going to use our hands and we're going to eat from the same, um, the same tagine, the same, um, platter together. And I think that there's a really like a sense of significance um, and solidarity and community that comes from that tradition. Cause that's not something I, I defined or that my father defined or his father. I mean, this goes back to, to forever that we've been doing this. Um, and so for me, it's really just like a, a continuum of that communion. Um, and it's especially important uh, in diaspora because it reminds us where we come from and it reminds us that we survived, um, that we survived different, different um, atrocities over time. So your father is Moroccan. You were born in. Yeah, my father is Moroccan. My mother is um, Anglo-American and I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. OK, so you identify as what? So I identify as Arab American. Um, I think that term is pretty complicated um, because like, what does it mean to be Arab? Like an Arab is someone, it could be someone from Morocco. It could be someone from um, Iraq. It could be someone from Palestine. It could be someone from Egypt. Um, So I think it's particularly interesting to think about like, how do I identify? Um, Because I think a lot of times like these like, forms of identification are really based in like Eurocentric values where it's mm. like, well, well, who are you and mm. where, where do you come from? And it's like, well, you know, my father comes from this city, you know, he comes from Fez, the oldest city in North Africa where the first, um, or in Morocco, excuse me, where the first university was ever created by a Muslim woman. And so to me, like, what is the difference between being Moroccan and being Algerian or being Tunisian? And so then does that all fall under the umbrella of being Arab? Um, How can the like diversity of our cultures all fall under that umbrella? So it's something that I struggle with when I think about, again, this kind of like confining definition, like what does it mean to be Arab? You know, when that definition has really kind of been placed upon us, especially by like Euro colonizing communities over right. time. Right. But yeah, I'm also a Muslim. So that's like, that's a definitely a, a big part of my identity and kind of my scope of how I see the world. I wanted to talk about that in, in reference to American values and, you know, just the challenges I'm sure that you face on a daily basis, being a Muslim woman attempting to navigate American culture, especially at a time of hostility 
Yeah, um, it's hard. Um, it's emotionally trying every day. I think that it's particularly challenging in a place like Portland, Oregon, where I live now, and I've lived here for seven years. And the, the nature of this place, the history of the city and the history of the state kind of has played into it, being really dominated by not only white people, but just the idea of whiteness and how whiteness can even permeate within our communities of color. Like, I think that we've been so affected by, like, these ideas of dominance that, like, for example, like, in immigrant communities, like, as a, as a you know, child of an immigrant, we often, like, adhere to, like, white settler values as opposed to honoring the indigeneity of this land and the indigenous peoples on whose land we, um, we are guests. So we subscribe to kind of ideals of whiteness, even though within our own communities we're affected by that violence, whether it be, you know, physically or emotionally or spiritually. Um, now, let me ask you this, I, because yeah. I have also noticed that, you yeah. know, just living in New York City and having mm -hmm. friends who are from different parts of the world who are like first generation, you know what yeah. I mean, from, mm -hmm. you know, from North Africa, especially maybe Egypt or wherever. And it mm -hmm. seems like sometimes they grow up in places uh, that are culturally white. Mm -hmm. So it's almost yeah. impossible for you to be culturally anything else. So then you, yeah. you identify and your friends are all white and, and it's nothing wrong with being white, but like it's weird to see someone who is clearly not white or not, mm -hmm. you know, it's the same yeah. thing when you see someone who's not black and they're like, mm -hmm. yo, what up, man? It's kind of, it's, mm -hmm. it's fraud. Mm -hmm. But I yep. think sometimes what happens, you can tell me if I'm wrong, that, that people hide. It's easier to be white than it is to be mm -hmm. what you are. Yeah. So and I yeah. think a lot of times yeah. people in that situation, they have a choice. They can, you know, they can be yeah. today. They can be Muslim America when it's con mm -hmm. American, when it's convenient. But also they can like mm -hmm. do the white thing and, and when it's convenient mm -hmm. for them. Oh, most definitely. I mean, I think you point out something really important and really like I think actually it's like an element of trauma. Um, like I think that when we look back at our ancestries and like we think about like the things that our people have gone through, like what they've gone through is very traumatic. And I think that it's easier for us sometimes to forget that and to not pay attention to that because it takes so much work to continue the healing process of that, that um, ongoing trauma that continues. And I think sometimes having that, this privilege of being able to pass as white is sometimes easier to do. And, you know, some people choose that. And I think that, um, I think it, it, you know, it's hard for me because coming from like a multicultural background, you know, like I've noticed that even within my own family, where it's like, well, how much of this are you? Are you welcome in your white family's community? Are you welcome in your um, North African family's community? Are you seen as enough on either side? But really, like, what, where does that idea come from? Like, what kind of this, this kind of idea of, like, percentage, you know? Like, well, who, who is a true Arab? Who is a true Muslim? Who is a true person from whatever culture and I think particularly in North African communities from what I've noticed um, there is a there is this kind of subscription to like a European 
way of being. I mean, I see it within my own family in Morocco where, you know, sometimes it's easier to just kind of adhere to the French mentality and the French way of being because, um, because when you grow up under colonial rule, when you grow up in that type of violence, that type of like spiritual and emotional and physical violence and these ideas of dominance are placed into your head over time as a child, um, that's going to impact you your entire life, you know? So I used to be angry about that with my father, you know, cause my father would really only speak French mm-hmm. with us. He never spoke a lot of Arabic with my brother, um, or myself. And I used to be mad about that. And then I realized that he was doing the best he could, you know, like that was what he felt like was a safer language to, to teach us. And, you know, he was doing what he did for reasons that I may never understand because he's been through things that I may never understand that he may never want to talk about with me and to kind of start to understand that and to really see my life as a continuum of his healing that he might not get to heal through some of the things that he went through, but maybe I can kind of bear some of that for him. Mm. So I think sometimes, you know, for those of us who come from that background, sometimes it's easier to not to choose not to do that. You know, I don't want to bear that burden. I want to have this easier life that that my family like tried to set up for me. But I don't think it's easier. I think it's there. The, there's something so peaceful and serene to me about knowing where I come from and knowing our traditions and knowing that we have such a beautiful and an old history. Um, there's something that builds a sense like a deep sense of confidence for me. So. I wouldn't choose that path, but I can understand like why, why some people would. But I I do think it's, uh, I think that there is an element of tragedy in that. And it makes me wonder like what our ancestors think, you know, Mm -hmm. if they trust, oh, we're doing the best we can, you know? Right. But yeah, this is definitely like an issue prevalent in our communities for sure. So I want to switch gears just a little because you mentioned your father and I want to listen to now, correct me if I'm wrong. Atai Banana. Is that right? Atai Banana. Yeah, you were close. <laughs> All right, I was close. I was close. So we're going to listen to this. I remember my father in the morning. Sunlight sieved through the window screen into the kitchen. He cleaned mint leaves from his jardin. His beige la basuede as he passed between cupboards searching for gunpowder tea and wildflower honey. His toes curled inside his house shoes. My father reached for our silver teapot. He and I carried it across the ocean from the northern Sahara, etched with patterns that mimic the sand. The mint had purple stalks, which he pushed inside the silver on top of the tea, the honey, and dried sage, making aromatic his sixth decade leather hands. The kitchen was a holy place. He poured simmering water from the kettle into the silver, and the leaves and honey made whirlpools. 
The burner on low, the whirlpool bounced for its second slow boil. A thousand times I watched, each the same, the mint, the cupboard, the pot, the pilot. And every morning, as the gunpowder unraveled, my father sat whispering Sir Oz from his red and gold Quran. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. The sunrise streamed through half-opened blinds. My father poured tea, beginning low, raising his arm to make a long stream and low again. I remember my father in the morning having tea with Allah. So what was the inspiration for that one? I mean, obviously it's your father, right? But Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you how did you how did that poem come about? Yeah, so that that's actually part of a bigger piece that I wrote called Baba. Um that's kind of about like this understanding of identity as the daughter of someone who's relatively private um and who kind of the way that he shared his culture with us was many ways through our food and through our tea. Um, and so I wrote this piece about him and, and then I had this idea. Um, people are always asking me like how to cook our foods. And at some point, um, I kind of, I got, I noticed I got offended. Um, like I I don't know how to just like explain to you how to do this thing that, um, I've been taught to do so many times And no matter how many times I'm taught how to do it, if I'm cooking with my father, he's still going to have something to say about how I could do it better. Um, And that this process of learning how to do something that's a part of our tradition, it's very sacred. Mm. And um, so I had this idea to make audio recipes that I would be like, hey, I'm going to teach you how to cook this thing, but I'm not going to actually explain to you how to do it. I'm going to share with you the part that's the most significant to me, which is the story and that that kind of sacredness of this act because until you understand that this is an act of liberation I'm not going to teach you how to do the actual thing and even if you tried to do it even if you tried to make the tea it's not going to taste in the way that it's going to taste when my father makes it or the way that it's going to taste when my auntie makes it or when I make it because there's not that sense of longing there's not that sense of spiritual connection there's not that sense of doing this on the shoulders of our ancestors there's simply kind of this consumption-based mentality Mm. um and so like oh this is a good thing i want to learn how to do it how do you do it and then do it and i kind of realized i could say no i could choose to not share something that was so intimate to me um as a recipe for making tea And so I started to kind of develop these um, stories and recordings that were really showing the intimacy, like listening to my father speak his language, hearing the birds in the background, um, listening to me make it, but not actually sharing the the words that would show how how to do it, so to speak. Man, it's so beautiful because 
I mean, instantly I heard that, and I felt like the intimacy, the intimacy of the of the making of the tea. You know what I mean, and how much it meant to him, and how much it means to you. It's like, it's kind of heavy for me. It's deep, man. Yeah, and, yeah, it is. It is deep. I'm glad you felt that. Yeah, and you painted the picture so beautifully too. You know, it's like, mm. you know, most people make tea in the morning or in the afternoon or whatever just to like get through their day. But this was like a this was like mm. praying or meditating. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's as if your father makes tea for God. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful that you that you heard it in that way, because that was kind of what I was trying to get at was like that, like, just as this is liberation, so too is it prayer, that everything we do has an element of prayer. Um, So even if that's making tea, or if that's, you know, um, reading poetry, like it all has an element of prayer within it. Um, and as a Muslim, that's really kind of how we're taught to be. That's how I was taught to be kind of this idea of like attraction, not promotion. Like my father would always say, you know, show who you are. You don't need to tell people that you're fasting, fasting during Ramadan, just fast. And if somebody offers you food, you can say, no, thank you. You don't Mm. need to say, oh no, I'm fasting. I'm this, I'm that, I'm that. Cause you know, I played basketball growing up and people would always be shoving food in my face like, we have a game tonight, we have a game tonight, Belhaj, <laughs> and, you know, it was really interesting, because I think, like, I learned at a really young age to be, like, oh, no, I'm good, like, no, thank you, mm-hmm. and to really not feel this need to explain why, um, hmm. so really to show our values through our actions um, without needing to to kind of take it that step further, and so it is a prayer, um, yeah, making tea is a prayer, it's a holy, it's a holy thing, um, and in that we, you know, we, we get to commune with our ancestors in that process. And I think that that's really, that's where that depth comes in because they bear a lot of weight. Um, and so we get to thank them in that process. Wow. I want to know, I'm, I'm curious to know, especially after listening to that poem, like what, what is your life philosophy? There's so many elements to it. I think that if there's if there's something that I could say to kind of encapsulate it, it would, it would really be that, you know, as a, as a person in this world, like it's a privilege to get to be alive. Like it's a privilege to get to participate in my life and to get to see the things and feel the things that I feel. Um, I think that honoring that might be the most important thing that we do. Like when I look out now, I'm looking out of the window and in an office in the building where I work and I'm seeing the clouds pass behind the trees and I'm seeing the perfection of the branches and the symmetry and the mathematics within this element in our natural world. And I look at that and it reminds me that, um, that there is so much that I've been given to honor and that it's such a privilege. It's such a privilege to get to sit here and to witness that and that my life should reflect the perfection that I see around me, not perfection in the sense of like an unattainable, you know, like reaching for something that, that I can't necessarily, that I can't necessarily go for, but really looking and seeing, wow, this thing has been through so much. This tree has been here for so much longer than I have. This sky, this sky has been here forever. This sky is the same sky that my ancestors stood beneath in a different land, you know? And, and I think that like, 
if my life isn't like founded upon like recognizing that, um, it can be very hard to live in the world with just humans because we're so complex. We make things so much more difficult. I think we both make them beautiful and very difficult. And so I think like by, by remembering and reflecting on this world that I live in, like I'm able to navigate the kind of the tragedies and, and the challenges on this path of life, you know, because I've been given such a small time, you know, nothing's promised. Like I might not be here in an hour or tomorrow or the next day. And, and so I really believe in like, while I'm here, like, getting to be here in a good way and and not only honoring what's come before me but really thinking about how what I do is preparing for the future it's preparing for the future generation for the the future Malika you know the future you know young person who I work with like that that's really what it's about and that every interaction is an opportunity for growth every interaction is an opportunity for harmony and for love and learning and play and and you know conflict all of it allows us a sense of growth Mm -hmm. um and so for me like that that's really how I try to walk through the world and and really just do it you know I try not to talk a lot about it because I think sometimes like you know I heard people say like the more people try to define something the further away they get from it the more we try to define like God or Allah the further away we get and so to me, I just try to do, and through those actions, I get to see, oh, maybe this action wasn't, this isn't the way that I want to be, and I can change that, or, or this is the way I want to be, and I'm going to do that more of that. Why, why did you decide to teach? This, this kind of career, like choice that I'm in is, is really interesting. So part of my work is teaching, and part of it is like, kind of like teaching the community in a way. Um, so again like I mean I really I've had so many mentors in my life like I feel like beyond my family who both my my parents and my aunties and uncles and I was raised by a lot of people um and in in that network by a lot of mentors and it just like I look down the line and I see like so many of those mentors are educators and that could be educators maybe in a traditional sense like my mother who's a great school teacher or it could be an educator in in the sense of like a mentor at a community center or um, a social worker or, um, you know, someone who's really kind of interrupted my process and reminded me who I am and helped me, help me like, you know, get on a good path, do, do good things. Um, And so that all, that all has influenced this. And, you know, the teaching that I do at, at the school here is really, I teach a community art class. And so we look at, um, we screen print because I screen print and, so they get to kind of design different like wearable items, um, but they also get to build community with a bunch of artists in our city um, because I want them to make connections and feel like they can go out and do different things outside of this building um, and kind of understand like, oh, this is how a photographer like functions in the world. This is how like a, a DJ or someone who owns a record label or all these different forms of art um, and so that they can kind of commune and interact with with those members of the community who are just part of my community. Um, so that, that is really beautiful. And you know, the, the students teach a lot themselves. It's really just like a, it's just like a back and forth. It's very reciprocal. Um, so, you know, it, to me, it's just a continuum of kind of what a lot of my mentors have done 
in their lives and kind of one way that I've been shown to um, be of service. Um, And the outreach work, you know, is very similar to that. It's like teaching the community and other agencies and, you know, um, caseworkers and juvenile detention folks, like really kind of trying to be the voice of the students in our program and to really go out and represent the students in a good way to all the different people in the community that have the opportunities to support and love them. Um, So it's all an element of teaching, but it's not necessarily all classroom teaching. Okay. Now I have a question for you. If, if right now, if you could come up with a solution to teach uh, the American community as a whole, like to teach them about your culture and to teach them to relinquish fear to relinquish hate you know what I mean how how would you go about doing that Hmm. the first thing I thought of um is like so I have these pop-up meals where I cook all of our traditional food um and if I were to teach like a class about my people in our community like what I would do is I would set up like long tables and I would invite people in like I was inviting them to my home and I would offer them I would offer them our food I would offer them our tea and in that process we would commune with each other because again it's like there there is no like there's no workbook there's no like you know all that information is out there if people want to learn about Islam if people want to learn about you know Arab people or or North African era people like there's plenty of research and and bodies of work from our communities I think that people have a a, a kind of a barrier to want to address that Mm -hmm. but when you welcome someone into your home I think that it um it kind of breaks down power dynamics and it kind of allows us to move in a space that's outside of a, a Eurocentric kind of hierarchy and it really puts someone in within my culture. When they walk into my home or when they walk into this room, they take off their shoes. When they walk into this space, they sit next to someone that they may not know. They may have to eat with their hands, and that might be uncomfortable for them, but maybe they understand a little bit about part of who we are and part of what we do. They hear the intellectual conversations happening. Maybe they learn about the things in our communities that they might not think of. Like when I think about my people, I think about, mathematics and education and engineering and like highly educated people those might not be the images that are in the minds of the people but I think that one of the issues that we face when we're teaching about our cultures especially as Arab Muslims specifically is that we center the terrorist narrative too much Mm. I don't even talk about terrorism I don't even talk about 9-11 Because by doing that, it centers it. It makes it the heart of the web. And then everything, everything comes off from that. Whereas if I center our foods or I center our um, philosophies, I center our education, our mathematics, our medicine, these things that come from our communities, our wisdom, our spirituality, then they, then individuals can see that these points in history are parts of a very complex web, but they are not the center or the beginning. Um, So to me, I try not to center that in my art at all. I try not to talk about it a lot. Um, And I really just try to show people. So I would welcome people into my home. 
Um, and, and, you know, something I want to say about that too, Darian, is that like something I think about a lot, especially since I've been in the Pacific Northwest, um, and I lived uh, in Salmon Nation here around indigenous communities, really thinking about in that space, honoring, honoring this land that I'm on, that I'm a guest on this land, um, and again, recognizing, you know, this privilege um, to get to be here and to get to honor these, um, you know, indigenous laws of the land, so to speak, the, the ways of being here in a good way. And to recognize that first before I even talk about who I am, because who I am is secondary to this land that I get to be on and this place that I get to call my home. Um, and the peoples that are still here, that's families and communities have been here you know, since time immemorial, as they say. And so I think that even recognizing that is very much a part of my culture is just thinking about, like, it's not just about us. Um, we come from a collectivist culture. It's about everyone within that web. And so we have to first acknowledge that before we can even think about, you know, talking about our people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm curious. Do you have Do you have a piece prepared or with you that kind of, embodies that feeling i do maghreb sunset is the name of a prayer said in the evening maghreb morocco is the name of the country where the sun sets late on the african continent the country where my father learned to speak and walk the land where my father learned to pray my father kept a prayer rug at his workplace carefully folded another over a chair in the living room of my childhood home during Ramadan, the holy 30 days, we fasted together. When I was tall enough to meet my eyes with the countertops, I set a table for two before resting my head at night. Two plates, two sets of cutlery, two glasses for tea. In the morning, my father filled the empty spaces with small plates of dried figs and dates, cured black olives and orange slices, boiled eggs with cumin and salt. He poured tea in the glasses, mint making its way through our small home as I woke for sahur. Good morning, my father said. Morning, Dad. Spalkhir, I replied, blinking the blurry morning clear. We sopped tomato sauce and kefta with bread until the clock ticked time to stop. That's good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this was my mornings when I was a child wow. during Ramadan. Man, so I like to ask everyone who comes on the show, you know, I ask yeah. everybody this question. I need you to name three things that you're most thankful for. I'm just thankful for the opportunity to get to be alive and participating in my life and awake. I've been through some traumatic things in my childhood and in my adulthood, and there have been times when I haven't really been awake to my life, and I feel very alive and awake and, and in participation right now, and for that I am truly grateful. I'm grateful to my elders and my mentorship I feel like I'm mentored by like little kids and adults and elders and everyone in between peers. Um, and I'm just constantly learning and growing. And I feel so humbled by that. And, you know, learning, learning and knowing how to cook my foods mm -hmm. is, is truly a gift. Like, I, I think I only realized recently that not everybody knows how to like cook traditional foods like I was just like it was such a part of my childhood growing up that it became so ingrained in me that I feel grateful to know how to do that even my mom like my mom lived over in Morocco she learned how to 
cook the foods and she taught me things and my dad didn't even teach me. And I just feel like that is the way that I get to remember, you know, where I come from and remember like why I'm doing what I'm doing. And so, yeah, like the gift to get to participate in my life, the mentorship and the ability to, to feed people and to give and offer. So do you have any, any shows or anything you want to promote to let people know where they can find you? They can, you know, maybe buy your work or. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not on Facebook anymore um, because I think it was uh, hurting my spirit, but definitely find my work at Instagram. Um, M V B E L H A J J J. And then my website, M V B E L H A J.com. There it is, man. Well, this is the end. I hate to end it so soon, but like, you know, I have to, yeah. I have to. Because otherwise, I'll yeah, be on the no. phone for three hours. Like, <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> I feel that. Thank you so much for letting me share my story. I appreciate it, Darian. Thanks for coming on the Working Artist Project, and uh, I'll catch y'all next time. Thank you. Yeah. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the Working Artist Project. Before you go, I need you to do a few more things. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment on iTunes and Facebook. I would love to connect with each and every one of you. It would also be awesome if you guys could check out my Patreon page. The link will be in the description. Each week, I will recognize one of my patrons at the end of this podcast. If you want to find out how to get your name called, click the link below. Become a patron. I'll catch you guys later. Peace.